Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Coming up first Reports all around the country have uh, shown that the problems that we faced in the last election haven't been resolved. Chaotic scenes in Papua New Guinea as voter frustrations of an outdated electoral roll mount. Chicago doesn't want anybody going to West Papua. It's like, again, it's there and all goes on area for overseas journalists. West Papuans urge Pacific leaders to include them in the upcoming forum agenda. This has impacted very seriously you know, on the refugees and asylum seekers. And Australia and New Zealand have been called out for not doing enough for refugees on Nauru amid a worsening COVID outbreak. Frustrations are mounting in Papua New Guinea, where an outdated electoral roll is resulting in voters all over the country being turned away at polling stations. RNZ Pacific's PNG correspondent Scott Wyde described the first two days of the country's two- to three-week-long polling period as chaotic. Sporadic violence has already started cropping up in parts of the country, coupled with images and videos of unscrupulous voting practices being posted on social media. I spoke with Scott Wyde, who is currently in Vanimo, now the border between Papua New Guinea and Indonesia's West Papua provinces. Yes, it's been uh, chaotic and reports all around the country have uh, shown that uh, the problems that we faced in the last election haven't been resolved. So one of the biggest problems that we faced uh, in the last election was the, uh, the, the names on the electoral roll. Uh, people turned up at the polls and then found that their names were not on the electoral rolls. Uh, this is the same situation that we're faced with now again. So it's been very frustrating for voters who've turned up at the polls and realized that uh, their names are not on the rolls. They've questioned the Electoral Commission. The Electoral Commission uh, doesn't have a sufficient answer, uh, a satisfactory answer for, for voters. And from the you know the period in the lead-up to the polls, there were indications that the Electoral Commission had sent out officers to, you know, the wards to get the roles updated and that we were getting the indications that uh, work was being done, that funding was an issue, but uh, the deadlines were being met. And when voters turned up at the polls, they realized that either the roles hadn't been updated or they were using, uh, you know, electoral roles from 2012, 2017. A classic example out of Lee where uh, I live, former treasurer of uh, the government, uh, Bart Philemon, long-time politician, former politician, turned up at the polls and realized that his name wasn't on the on the list as well. So it, it gives you an indication of how serious the problem is. Is this resulting in, in, in any serious altercations? I guess without the sufficient explanation, as you say, coming from the Electoral Commission, there must be some angry voters out there. Um, yes, so there was, a, there was an instance at uh, Egam Barracks in Leigh uh, where ballot papers were burnt because they, you know, people there felt that the electoral commission had enough time to do it, but the uh, papers that went there were insufficient. Um, I've also had reports from where I am now in Vanimo on the PNG Indonesia border uh, that uh, electoral officials are telling voters that they can, you know, give their names for the roles to be updated, which is, you know. What use is it to have uh, roles updated now? Uh, so it's a, a very charged atmosphere at all the polls. There are also pictures circulating 
in the highlands in, in, of children marking ballot paper. So that's a major, major concern. And that's bound to happen uh, as the polling progresses. I seem to remember going back like the the whole roll update thing is also tied in with the inability to conduct the census. Am I right? Yes, census. Uh, the the census progress of the census has always been well in the last ten years has been erratic. Governments have talked about uh, updating the rules um, and getting the census done, and this hasn't been a real you know effort put into those in very very important uh, functions of of the democracy so it's started from funding to you know lack of manpower to uh, the census not being done properly and the roles not being updated um, so it's it's a whole collection of problems and you know from uh, a voter's perspective it's just the inability and the lack of political will to actually get this fixed and i guess a, a lot of people would be would be missing out on casting votes altogether be, because of this situation with the rolls yes it's not an isolated situation and that's what makes it very worrying it's not an isolated situation uh, you, you go to every polling station and you speak to anyone there and they will know at least two or three people or four people, maybe five, even ten people who can't vote because their names are not on the electoral roll. Uh, so it's it's that serious. And if, if it's like uh, in one location and almost everyone's talking about it, then you, you see the extent of the problem. Yes, that's a, that's a lot of people denied their democratic right to vote, right? Yes. Now, um... The I spoke a bit with the Electoral Commission um, yesterday, and they were talking about um, being up against a dead a deadline, sort of the 29th of July being the returning of the writs and trying to get things wrapped up. I guess this this issue will probably draw things out a lot longer than they anticipated. I think the 11th of July they were hoping for polling to wrap up with the 15th as a as a extended deadline. You know, the the general narrative within the public is that uh, the Electoral Commission has five years, uh, five years, you know, in each cycle, five years to get its act together, five years to get all the problems sorted out. Uh, but it, it just hasn't had the will and the ability to do so. When it comes to election times, uh, election uh, polling dates, that's what we always see. Uh, and that's happened in 2012, 2017, uh, and, and 2022 now. So it's it's very, very frustrating because uh, people expect that these issues could have been solved, but they're not being solved or haven't been solved. West Papuans are calling on Pacific Island leaders to include them in the forum agenda in Fiji. The call comes as Papuans mark the 6th July anniversary of the Biak massacre in West Papua, when indigenous Papuans hoisted the Morning Star flag on this day in 1998. Indonesian soldiers moved in on them and dozens of people were killed. The spokesperson for the Australia West Papua Association, Joe Collins, says the violence in West Papua is worsening and he wants next week's Pacific Islands Forum Summit to ensure it is on the agenda. He spoke with Don Wiseman, who began by asking him about the Biak massacre. It's a tragic story. Um, West Papua had gathered 
under a war of terror in Biak, and they raised the West Papuan flag. They started gathering on the 2nd of July and held various celebrations throughout the period up until the 6th of July. And it was then in the morning of the 6th that the military decided they had, I guess, have had enough, and they attacked the West Papuans under the water tower. Many were killed, and there have been reports of women being raped. But the, and the real tragic part is that quite a large number have, were taken out to sea on a Navy ship and dumped into the ocean. And even days afterwards, bodies were being washed up on the foreshore. And what the Indonesians tried to say was that because there had been a tsunami in Papua New Guinea on the other side of the border, and they claimed that bodies from PNG had been washed around and they were not West Papua casualties at all. How many people died? It's very hard to pinpoint the exact number, but um, Eltham Institute for Public and Human Rights in Jayapur, in, in an article last year, mentioned that 32 bodies were washed up. Quite a number obviously were killed, but it's like a lot of the information coming out of us proper. With the security forces clamping down, media blackouts, it's extremely difficult to pinpoint the exact number of casualties. But they were in the, certainly in the scores. Do we know why the Indonesian security forces took this approach? I think they were becoming concerned that the number of West Papuans were gathering, there were more gathering every day, and I think that they were becoming quite concerned. And, and back in 1998, when it occurred, West Papuan flag was really sort of um, cracked down on. Anybody raising West Papuan flag would be immediately arrested, if not killed. So those days was even, I mean, it's still bad now and it's even probably getting worse, but they were really, it was like waving the red flag to a, a ball. Once that West Papua flag was raised, that was it. The security forces just came in with the usual heavy-handed approach and started shooting and arresting and beating people and raping um, uh, a number of women as well. In fact, yes. you might remember the number of the 43 West Papuans came to Australia in 2006, a lot of them were actually involved in, in BIAC at the time. And that's part of the reason they came to Australia seeking asylum. It is, as we say, it's the 24th anniversary of the BIAC massacre. But your organisation, the Australian West Papua Association, wants to ensure that the Australian government makes a deal about what's going on in Papua at the Pacific Islands Forum, which is coming up in just a few days' time. Well, we're actually we're more relying on the other Pacific Island Forum leaders to raise the issue of us proper. I mean, in the past, Australia usually just does everything it can to keep it off the agenda. I mean, I remember a report by one media journalist saying that when John Howard attended one of the forum meetings, he spent half his time going around trying to convince all the PIF leaders not to raise the issue of us puppet to keep it off the agenda. And and that's unfortunately basically Canberra's line. They will do anything at all to try and keep it. It's like West Papua is a no-go area for Canberra. They just will do anything they can to keep it off the agenda. We have written to Canberra many times and they do say they um, raise the issue with Indonesia and they try to explain it all by saying they're using, I guess, the softly, softly approach by not making megaphone diplomacy which they talk about with other countries, but they, they are quite happy to criticise human rights abuses in China, the Middle East, anywhere, but they will not mention West Papua. It's literally a no-go area. The Pacific Islands Forum, for a number of years now, has had on its books this commitment to send a fact-finding team to Papua, but Jakarta never seems to uh, come to an agreement over it. 
loud, and that's part of the problem. If Australia doesn't want to know about it, Jakarta doesn't want anybody going to West Papua. It's like, again, it's there in all goes on area for overseas journalists, backfinding missions. And that's, if you ask the West Papua, what do they want? They actually want people to go there, investigate the human rights situation in West Papua. But Jakarta obviously blocks any move from the UN to go there or any organisation or other country that would like to go and visit West Papua. Basically, it's again, it's an all-go area. West Papua is literally off the agenda just about everywhere in, in our region. But congratulations to the Pacific Island Forum leaders have raised it many times at the UN, particularly Vanuatu. They continuously raise it at every United Nations meeting they can. Uh, and it's to their credit, they're great, and they are smaller from Australia. They are very courageous in doing this. And again, Indonesia is a post-war dialogue partner at the PIF. It's a great opportunity for Australia as well to sit down with a group and discuss their human rights situation with Papua. Australia's Refugee Action Coalition has called out both the Australia and New Zealand governments over their inaction in supporting refugees placed in Nauru by Canberra as the Pacific country faces rapid and widespread community transmission of COVID-19. There are just over 100 refugees and asylum seekers left in Nauru. The refugee group says they are particularly vulnerable with some already hospitalised with COVID-19. RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis spoke with the coalition's Ian Rintoll, who is based in Sydney but has been actively supporting refugees and asylum seekers in Nauru for years. Over the, the last uh, week, we've been growing you know, very, very concerned because the numbers of COVID uh, cases in Nauru have you know, just exploded. There's now more than a third of the whole population of Nauru have actually got COVID, and this has impacted very seriously you know, on the refugees and asylum seekers, both in an immediate way and the number of people who have got COVID. Some of them have been hospitalised in circumstances where the resources of the Nauruan hospital are nothing like what's necessary necessary to deal you know, with a, a serious outbreak. So we're very, very concerned. Uh, the Australian government needs to act very, very proactively um, to assist you know, the Nauruan government in the outbreak of, the, you know, of COVID uh, you know, on the island. Uh, but in particular, they need to be taking their responsibility for the health and welfare of the refugees and asylum seekers that are on that island at the behest of the Australian government. Uh, they should be evacuated. They should be brought from uh, Nauru uh, to Australia. So just to be clear, you are calling for the evacuation of refugees and asylum seekers in light of COVID-19? Uh, yes, we think ultimately that what needs to happen. I mean, the Australian government needs to provide all the resources that the Nauru government actually needs you know, to, to, you know, to treat people. Does the New Zealand government have a responsibility and a role to play here too? Or does the responsibility solely rest on the shoulders of the Australian government? Well, the Australian government has a particular responsibility, obviously, because they've put them there and kept them there for nine years. But yes, the New Zealand government now uh, has, you know, has said that they're willing to actually take refugees and asylum seekers uh, from Nauru. Um, I think, yes, they should speed up. Uh, if there was the New Zealand government would be willing to step into the breach and say, well, you know, all the refugees and asylum seekers that we were going to accept should come immediately, um, then that would be a very sensible, you know, response as, uh, response as well. Um, you know, 
know, as much as I think, you know, the people on the road, the Australian government's responsibility, New Zealand has put its hand up to actually, you know, take some of the people, uh, to resettle some of the people from uh, Nauru. Um, yes, it would be an, of immense assistance if the New Zealand government would say, you know, we're willing to, uh, you know, to bring people uh, now. How many refugees are there and what proportion of those refugees have contracted COVID-19? No, we've not got accurate figures. I mean, there's around um, 107 uh, refugees and asylum seekers who are still you know, left on left on the roo, uh, but we've not got an accurate figure at all about how many of those have got COVID. We're pretty sure uh, that a high proportion of them are, are double vaccinated uh, at least. Yeah, and the Nauru government has confirmed that one person with COVID-19 has died. This is the first COVID-19 related death in Nauru in their first community outbreak. Do you know whether or not this person is a refugee or asylum seeker? No, I don't. We're having a lot of trouble actually, you know, confirming those, you know, those individual uh, cases because people who we are in touch with, touch with tend to be, you know, locked down or lot, have locked themselves down in their, you know, in, in their rooms. So there's not a lot of information that's, uh, you know, that's available. It's one of the other things which make us, you know, very uh, anxious. And going back to your call to the Australian government, have you written a letter, any formal letter, to the government and have you received a response? Well, we've had no, no formal response. I mean, we, know we haven't formally written to uh, the Australian government about evacuating, but we have made those you know, quite public calls. Is this a fresh call in light of COVID? That's the, you know that's right because the circumstances that the refugees have been on the route uh, have already mean that very many of them have serious you know underlying health conditions. I mean one of the guys that I'm in contact with has got serious you know diabetic issues, which we know is one of the things which you know complicate you know COVID infection. Now he's not he's not got COVID at the at the moment, but he he is just fearful you know and and is not able not willing or able to go out of his his particular unit uh, because he knows he would be particularly you know vulnerable but feels it's only a matter of time given the situation that he's in before he's likely to get COVID. Now we've raised that with the Australian government very very publicly about the situation for you know when we've seen you know sort of the COVID infections in the uh, detention centres uh, in Australia we've raised you know the danger that people in Papua New Guinea and uh, Nauru you know have been in and why they need to be medical evacuated should be medically uh, evacuated now the crisis is actually in, you know engulfing Nauru I mean we'll be very thankful if we get through uh, this crisis without losing. Uh, an asylum seeker or you know a refugee, but it's um, the uh, the fact even that someone even in the ruin, I think the Australian government has got some responsibility to providing you know the evacuation services uh, and the medical services for people you know on on the rue. As I said, they pumped hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in the rue. Uh, people shouldn't be dying you know of COVID you know on the rue without the without there being the medical services that are necessary. If they're not, necess if they're not available for Nauruans, they're not available for the asylum seekers and, uh, you know, and refugees. And that should be you know, a clear trigger for the Australian government to act and act quickly. Work is underway among Pacific leaders in New Zealand to unpack the government's 2022 Pacific budget package. 196 million New Zealand dollars has been allocated to Pacific communities in New Zealand 
20 million of which will be injected into a diabetes prevention and treatment program in South Auckland. RNZ Pacific reporter Susanna Suisuiki spoke with Auckland University Pacific Health researcher Dr. Ofa Duz at a post-budget breakfast event in Mangere on Monday. It's very important to uh, get a get to grips with what the budget um, has uh, put forward for Pacific peoples. It's important to understand what the investments are and what are the key priorities for Pacific peoples and uh, to know what are the uh, key issues that have been highlighted in the budget that need our support but also our engagement. It's not just about our uh, ministries and uh, political leaders identifying the issues, uh, but the community has a role also to play and to support the, um, the work that needs to be done in the community, with the community, help them to understand where the priorities are and what we might be able to uh, to identify as local initiatives that the community can contribute to the budget investments for us. And what's something within this Pacific package that, that's caught your interest? Well, from uh, my work as a um, local board member in my community, especially in Papatoitoi where I have lived for 32 years, I've lived among the people, listened to them, and it's important to start with where they're at, what they can do, and empower them to deliver on what they are able to do, and to relate the community voice with what our government has identified as priority issues for the whole of New Zealand, and especially for Pacific peoples. Pacific peoples are unique. We have in, uh, unique issues that are only relevant to us and it's important to identify that as a strength. Our strengths as Pacific peoples, our resilience and build on those strengths to, to um, address the, um, the difficulties and challenges that uh, we face uh, and that it brings uh, to the community uh, a strengths-based focus rather than focusing on our deficits and um, uh, strengthen and uh, highlight our capabilities. I know from working with our people and living among them that they are, we are an intelligent uh, community. We are an indigenous, um, intelligent Pacific peoples and we need to harness that resource. And with the investments by the government, we can make things possible. Mm. Are you confident that this budget will meet your needs or meet the needs of your community? I'm confident that it will help to meet the needs of our community, especially in terms of, uh, in my role as a Pacific Health researcher, the investment in uh, diabetes. Um, that is a um, non-infectious disease that is prevalent in our community. The highest rates are seen in Pacific populations, not only here in New Zealand, but in the region, even Pacific people living uh, in Australia and in the United States of America. It's a major issue worldwide. And uh, 
the fact that our government has recognised the um, the need to invest in this um, uh, major disease that's affecting our peoples, not just our older uh, Pacific peoples, but also we are seeing younger Pacific people affected by uh, the um, by diabetes and uh, the. Um, the uh, impact it has on um, their quality of life and well-being because connected with that is uh, kidney disease, um, the impact on, um, of gout also, and uh, the, uh, the investments to understand the science behind the disease is very important for us because we know that um, lifestyle behaviours to address uh, the uh, prevalence of diabetes is not enough. We need to understand our biology, our genetics, and uh, work with our clinicians and research scientists, as well as with our data scientists. Uh, in fact, right across the board, bring everyone's knowledge and skills together to understand fully what this uh, disease uh, means to us and how we can develop precision medicines to treat the disease, to treat diabetes, to treat gout and kidney disease. And with the investments through Pharmac, it's important to ensure that they become aware of the science, the scientific research that is being done about it. And so I'm very grateful for the investment uh, in diabetes um, and for the treatment. The investment with our Pacific uh, service providers uh, in primary health care that is much needed to ensure that Pacific peoples receive the uh, primary care that they need and uh, and deserve and also not forgetting that uh, we do have a referral scheme through uh, the uh, realm countries of Cook Islands, Beware, Tokelau and uh, that we don't forget them uh, also in receiving the uh, cost of living payments because while they're here uh, awaiting treatment or receiving treatment, they've been brought here because they need me medical help and attention. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Metaki mata, arira.